Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley, and we're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team. And we're on the podcast to help break down many of the interesting and challenging issues that are in front of employers with respect to benefits and compliance. And uh, Suzanne, we're on today, um, first part of June 2021. We made it to the summer. Uh, We're excited to talk about high drug costs today. This is a challenge that is uh, out there and is a hot button issue. And we keep hearing about it and we keep um, hearing different things about it. So um, for high drug costs, can you give us some background on this, Suzanne, to get us started? Yeah, you're right. It is one of the top concerns that is found uh, on various polls like the Kaiser Family Foundation. Um, Most show that the high drug costs outweigh Medicare for All debate, for example, is a top healthcare issue for voters. We did have HR3, that was a bill in the 116th Congress that passed the House and enabled the federal government to negotiate prices. It failed in the Senate, but it's under discussion again in the 117th Congress, and so we may see this um, come into play, uh, although there's, there is some pushback that's occurring. This is just one way of trying to control drug prices, and, and we're going to discuss others. Um, but as the federal efforts have generally stalled, what we've seen is a large uptick in state legislation over the past few years on efforts to control drug prices. Yeah, so that's so interesting to hear that it's more popular or, or higher priority than the single payer system, right? Medicare for all. Right. I always think of that usually as the, as the biggest debate in healthcare, but um, prescription drug pricing is um, just as high there. So let's dig into some of those state proposals and maybe start with uh, one of the issues around this, which is uh, prescription drug price transparency. Right. Yes. And I do want to take today to, to just walk through the states. I will touch on federal efforts as well, just a little bit. But there are currently hundreds of bills at the state level that are designed to address prescription drug costs through various means. And so we're going to walk through the various levers that are being pulled by the state. Like you mentioned, we'll start with transparency. Transparency bills seek to improve drug pricing through a greater understanding of the economic forces that drive drug price increases. Um, the, the public focuses on drugs list price, which is called the wholesale acquisition cost or WAC. And I think of it similar to a build charge at a hospital. It's the list price Um, that the drug manufacturers base their price that they charge the wholesalers from. But due to rebates and other things, it's not really representative of the amount that the manufacturer receives, similar to what we think about with hospital list price and negotiated prices through insurers. The net price is really more representative of what the manufacturer receives. And, And so part of tackling really this problem is the complexity of the drug distribution system. There are many players, and so, um, which really is not unlike other industries that use intermediaries. So the parties in the pharmaceutical distribution system include wholesalers, pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, as we'll refer to them, insurers, and pharmacies. And there's a bit of mystery, at least in terms of the public and, frankly, legislators, as to how each of these players are profiting. 
And so that is why really some of the legislators are proposing policies that are designed to increase transparency to provide them and the public with more information about how each of these uh, players in the drug distribution system are setting prices and particularly when there are significant price increases. So if we look to the states right now, there's about 43 bills that pertain to transparency. Some would require the different players like the manufacturers, the PBMs or the insurers to report net price for certain drugs. Um, in many cases, this is kept confidential by the states, which is certainly something you would see um, pushback from if a company is required to submit their uh, profits of sorts, uh, that type of information into the states. Obviously, that doesn't do a lot of good to the public. And so other states are requiring them to produce some type of summarized report of that information that they retain. The legislatures generally view the intermediaries as responsible for increasing the drug prices. And their hope is that by reporting the net profits, that they may be able to identify where there are excess profits in the distribution system. Other laws require drug companies to report price increases in advance, again, with the hope that if um, that the drug companies or the intermediaries or whomever will um, think twice before increasing um, those drug prices if they have to report it in advance. Um, again, when a drug manufacturer plans wholesale acquisition cost increases, and that's that whack above a certain threshold, these various policies would require them to provide advance notice. And, and if we look at how this has played out under a current state law, we can look to Nevada, for example. So that's a state in which it is already enacted transparency legislation. And in 2019, Nevada began enforcing penalties under this new reg. And to date, it has imposed more than 17 million in fees on 20 different drug companies that manufacture diabetic therapies, um, just due to non-compliance with the drug price transparency reporting. Wow, so that, that's an interesting example in, in Nevada there. And that is a big challenge, right? It's just knowing the cost of something. So this seems like a, maybe a way to address that issue, particularly for consumers. Uh, what about prescription drug affordability review boards? Is that um, something that's out there and, and are states thinking about those? And, and what are they actually? What, what, right. What's with that? What is a drug affordability review board? Right. I know it is. Uh, it, they, we are seeing more discussion around these boards and some states have created them already. And there's uh, there are about 14 bills right now that are uh, trying to establish them in states. So we have about six states that have already enacted the legislation. It's Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New York and Ohio. And they differ. These boards differ on what they will review or what the thresholds are before a drug will come before the board for review. Some look at a certain threshold in, in terms of a price increase. Some look at just high cost drugs in general. Uh, but for example, Maryland's board has, quote, the power to oversee any prescription drug that creates affordability challenges to the Maryland healthcare system. So that's rather vague, and it's really unclear how that would be accomplished. But what these review boards do is they look at certain drugs and review their prices um, to determine whether they um, are affordable, whether there should be alternatives that are available, and whether they will set some type of cap. Now, while states certainly can establish these boards and they can set what they recommend as the maximum price for certain drugs, they really have limited ability to ensure that those prices are actually adopted. When you look at Medicare, for example, you have federal preemption, and so they cannot impact the Medicare drugs. Um, certainly with 
uh, self-insured plans, you have ERISA preemption, fully insured plans would fall likely under some of the insurance laws. Um, now, Medicaid, they could probably impact. But while we have seen states that have imposed fines on some drug manufacturers for failing to provide data under their transparency laws, we really haven't seen these affordability board recommendations um, challenged. And so it's, their effectiveness is really untested. Um, and as you can imagine, there's pushback from the pharmaceutical industry um, based on the idea of these economic models that when you have price controls, it's gonna lead to less innovation, uh, reduction in supply, which ultimately would lead to a lack of access to important drugs, potentially even some that are life savings. Right. So that's that's where the conflict is with those um, boards. For one, we don't know how effective they really are, and then and then secondly, some see them as establishing price controls for which um, can have unintended consequences. What about uh, prescription drug importation? I think that's something that's been out there and discussed as, as an idea and a practice of bringing in drugs from other countries. I know this is. I think this is a really interesting topic, personally, but. Um, before we talk about what's happening at the state, I, I, it's, I have to speak about what's occurring at the federal level. In October of last year, the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, and the FDA published a final rule that would permit importation of prescription drugs from Canada. Um, it became effective November 30th, but there's significant challenges. First, there was a lawsuit um, brought by Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America and others um, in November that challenged the final rule. And then a few days later, Canada passed an interim order that banned the exportation of certain drugs from Canada. Canada's very concerned that by opening this up, um, they will have a, a lack of supply in their own country to deal with uh, their own health issues. And so they, they passed an interim order that would prohibit um, this from really being put into play. So the final rule implements what's called Section 804 of the FDA Act, which would allow the states to develop an importation program to import drugs from Canada. There's obviously a lot of aspects to this, you know, it, when it looks at, at which drugs can be imported and the various controls that have to be in place to ensure safety. It does become effective, notwithstanding everything that we've discussed so far with the lawsuit in Canada, only if the secretary of HHS certifies to Congress that the importation plan would pose no additional risk to the public safety and would result in significant reduction in the cost of drugs. So it's not an automatic flip the light switch. Um, there, there is some requirement by HHS to uh, report into Congress before it could actually go into effect. Again, notwithstanding the lawsuit in the Canadian interim order, um, which we will continue to watch for additional developments. Now, until you know, the HHS proclamation, the lawsuit and the, the Canadian interim order is resolved, the states really can't move forward on these policies, but that hasn't stopped them from um, instituting or enacting or proposing bills on this subject. So currently there are about 23 bills that are proposed that require state agencies to get into the game of importing drugs on a wholesale basis. One example of a state bill is Oklahoma. They proposed. Uh, they have a proposed bill SB 940 that authorizes any licensed pharmacist and wholesale drug distributor in the state to import prescription drugs from a certified Canadian supplier, and to distribute these drugs to patients or licensed pharmacists in Oklahoma. Um, the bill specifies that individuals can only get imported drugs from a certified Canadian supplier and 
that only licensed wholesalers, pharmacies, or pharmacists can import the drugs. So that's one example of what a bill um, would look like uh, along these lines. It's an interesting crossover, really, of federal and state law as well, both you know, trying to address this issue of importation. Um, so, so Suzanne, on a prior podcast, we talked a little bit about uh, a Utah program that was sending employees to Mexico. So kind of a, a prescription drug tourism type of arrangement, uh, which is related, but not exactly the same as what we're talking about with importation here. But it's right. an interesting twist on that issue of obtaining drugs from another country. Right. What are some of the concerns that are raised uh, by the critics of importation? Well, first of all, you're right that it, it is related because they both have limitations in terms of federal law and, and bringing drugs back into the U.S. So it, and it was a very interesting program that the Utah did for their own state health plan um, to send individuals down to Mexico to buy drugs and then come back at a much lower cost. Um, mm-hmm. but, but in terms of just general importation concerns, Obviously, the, the largest concern has to do with safety and how we can ensure that drugs being brought into the country, whether it be from Canada or another country, are, are from a reliable source. But also just logistical concerns. How would the drugs be dispensed? Who bears the cost of the shipping? And, and would the retailer segregate drugs imported from Canada from those that are obtained in the U.S.? Um, are U.S. doctor prescriptions viable in Canada? Would the drug be labeled in Canada? So there's just some... And then really, are there some true savings is, you know, through when you add in all of the additional mechanisms that need to be put into play in order to safely import these medications from other countries, are there really true savings that would result from it? So um, there's just, uh, there's a lot to consider. It's not as simple as it seems. Right. Um, I'm certain your list that we're talking about today will include regulation of pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs. You, You mentioned them. Uh, a few, few minutes ago, speak to that really quickly. Yeah, they do. They seem to be kind of the hot button issue for regulators, and I, I think because they're one of the intermediaries, they see um, that uh, they are they are an easy target, similar to how insurers in the public view are an easy target. Um, it's really there. Are, it's really garnered the most attention from the legislature when you think of these various other players. There's about 101 bills right now in states that are instituting reforms of PBMs in one form or another. And there's certainly some that have already passed in states currently. But they are really, I think, the effect of it on PBMs is that they are being pushed to demonstrate their value through the services that they offer. So they're not viewed as merely a player that adds cost to, you know, in the distribution system. So we're seeing more PBMs offer like population health management clinical outcomes improvement, along with, you know, their traditional services that deliver discounts and and the use of generic drugs and so forth. But regulating PBMs comes into really about four buckets. The first is transparency, which we really have already hit on, but it's, um, you know, the requirement that they give um, really financial and utilization information to plans that who use their services, in addition to giving that information into the state. There are also requirements that provide plan sponsors with claims information relating to payments made to PBM-owned pharmacies and those that are not affiliated with the PBM. And under this bucket um, are proposals that restrict the ability of health plans and PBMs to selectively contract for the provision of specialty pharmacy services by imposing what's called any willing pharmacy requirement. 
Um, and so the pushback on that is that the unintended impact of, of not allowing really kind of network uh, pharmacy requirements is that you'll have a reduction, those, those network discounts that um, you know, come from that type of arrangement are gonna be impacted. And so you'll actually see some of the drug costs increase and then, so there's a second bucket now of regulation, which is licensure. And again, most PBMs generally support licensure. That's a, a good thing. We don't want people who, for example, are involved in fraudulent activity, um, involved in that industry. So I think generally licensure requirements are seen favorably. The third bucket pertains to bills that are targeting spread pricing. Um, which targets the profits that PBMs make from the difference between the amount the PBM pays a pharmacy versus what it charges the employer or the state. Obviously, there's a lot of pushback on anything that really touches on um, capping profits. And then there are finally some that prohibit PBMs from retaining rebates from the drug manufacturers. Um, that is, is usually seen with uh, some pretty strong public support and not difficult to get passed through. And then the final bucket really pertains to Medicaid managed care and PBMs uh, and really streamlining PBMs that work with the Medicaid managed care system. And so we won't really hit on that. It doesn't hit our clientele as much as, as really these other areas. Each one of these topics, we could have spent an entire podcast on. There's so many facets to them. We really just wanted to hit them at a high level today to kind of give you an mm-hmm. idea of the different ways in which the state's um, really, and the federal government are seeking to impact the increased drug prices. And so um, we will continue to monitor all of these things. And when there's um, some interesting developments, we'll um, either possibly do another podcast or put it out through uh, some of our other channels. Yeah. Thanks for all this information, Suzanne. I mean, these are some really interesting dynamics as we go through these, you know, the different players here and talk a little bit about state versus federal, a little bit about the interest of you know, consumer interests versus uh, private company interests versus governmental interests. And so all those are sort of at play here and uh, makes it a really interesting debate and a really uh, challenging environment to for states and the federal governments to uh, come up with some rules to maybe help with all of this. Uh, but yeah, thanks for all the info and we will continue to monitor and we'll continue to uh, break these down maybe on future podcasts, maybe take one of these Uh, topics and dig a little bit deeper Uh, but for today but for today thanks for uh thanks for all this info and uh as we like to say on the podcast that's a wrap that's a wrap thanks for joining us thank you